Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I went back and looked at the stories that were publishing less than two months ago about the China coronavirus. On January 8th, 59 people total had been diagnosed with it, and Chinese authorities were saying there was no evidence it was transferred person to person. How far we have come in just two months. What do we have now? Just under 100,000 confirmed cases worldwide? That's what I saw and many, many more to come based on what Dr. Amy Acton told us. When we asked what the when the coronavirus would arrive in Ohio, um, Dr. Acton, who's the head of the uh, Ohio Department of Health, said it was, quote, winning now. I was really impressed with her presentation and what to expect. She's overseeing the whole state's response um, to the coronavirus. We'll be talking about that a good bit in a moment. We'll have some other topics, but the coronavirus is front and center of the episode, so let's get it going. Welcome to This Week in the CLE, the podcast that breaks down the news with the expertise of the reporters and editors of Cleveland.com. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, here with co-host Laura Johnston, who has finally come around to the view that the coronavirus is the story of the year so far for 2020. Yes, I've come around to that, but we do have other topics to talk about today. The idea that Ohioans could be able to grow as many as six marijuana plants at home is pretty intriguing. Cleveland City Council's desire to declare racism a public health crisis. But yes, after this week, I'm all in on covering the coronavirus. We're covering all the angles, public bathroom etiquette, how to care for your pet, an info comic that tells you how to protect yourself. The stories just keep going. It's so big that we're actually going to do it in two parts. For the first, we'll talk with Laura Hancock in our Columbus Bureau about the hour we spent with Dr. Acton. For the second, we'll talk with a couple of reporters in Cleveland about the stories we've been writing to prepare Northeast Ohio for the arrival of the virus. All right, let's give it a shot with Laura Hancock. We're still working our way through the technology of doing this, and we think we've done some things to improve the tinny sound quality from last week's experiment with Andrew. So let's get her on the line. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Hi. Hi. So I have to say how impressed I was after spending an hour with Dr. Amy Acton. She was refreshingly not political when she came to talk to us at cleveland.com. And even though our editorial board had complained about the lack of transparency about testing for the coronavirus, she held nothing back. The good news, if there's anything about this that could be called good news, is that Ohio is on the verge of being able to test for the coronavirus. Yeah, the CDC says the tests are ready and the health department's just waiting for them. Um, When they begin testing, it'll speed up the turnaround time. Right now, it takes three to five days to get a test result back from the CDC. And Dr. Acton said that um, Ohio can do them in one to two days. She said a couple of things that surprised me. 
one thing surprised me so much that I went back and I read the original reporting on the virus back in January. What she said was there was never any legitimate expectation that this virus could be contained, that it was always going to become a pandemic. That's not what the national health experts were saying a month ago. Back then, they said they hoped to keep it out of the U.S., but Acton said the containment efforts were really just to slow the spread to give health departments and the public time to prepare. Yeah, there's certain stages the spread of the disease goes through. Um, and at certain and at each stage, the health departments respond. It starts with the identification of an animal virus spreading to people. Then there's a phase where the illness spreads to clusters of people. And then there's the phase where it starts showing up in other parts of the world. And then that's pandemic stage. And then eventually, after lots of people get sick, some people die, the infection rate starts to drop. And so go ahead. That, yeah, that's just like, okay. <laughs> um, all right, Chris, what was the second thing that surprised you? Well, you know, I've thought since January this thing would sweep the world, and I just presumed that by the time it was done, all of us would have been exposed to it. I remember with the West Nile virus a few years back, after that went through its cycle, they went around and did random blood tests, and it showed that the majority of us had been infected without ever knowing it or getting sick. And I thought this would be the same. But Acton said, no, that while it will spread through the country and through Ohio, a significant part of the population will not get exposed to it or infected with it. Not the majority, it sounds like, but a lot of people. Yeah. Every time I talk to Dr. Acton, she mentions a study, and I finally got a copy of it, and it's out of Egypt. Um, students in 30 schools were required to wash their hands twice a day and not required in uh, 30 other schools. And the kids who washed their hands had a 50% decrease in instances of pink eye, diarrhea, and flu. So the lesson here is that we can take measures like washing our hands to control getting infected. Like I said earlier, our editorial board had criticized the health department. The thought was that they were refusing to say in the state where people were being tested. They were only releasing updates on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And we kind of thought that was inadequate for a crisis. Can you talk about Acton's thoughts here? Yeah, on Monday night, um, the night before she came in, um, the health department announced they will start updating daily. Um, but she said that identifying where in the state a potential case is located um, could violate privacy because everyone could figure out who's traveled to China recently. But if anyone tests positive, she said she'll release more details such as location in the state. And with Miami University, where they did announce some details of the, of the potential cases that tested negative eventually. The word was already out, so she said that was a unique case. You know, we asked people on my subtext account for questions for Acton, and if people don't know what that is, it's a free service where I send a couple of messages a day about what we were thinking in the newsroom and take some feedback from the people who subscribe. You can sign up for free by texting 216-868-4802. Anyway, we asked for questions, and one of the repeated ones was about whether the state will pay for the testing for this virus. Yeah, Dr. Acton said that insurance, if you have private health insurance, it will pay for it. And if you're on Medicaid, it will pay for it. However, if you're totally uninsured, uncovered, the state will not fail to conduct a test due to inability to pay. They do have some extra funds. So one of Acton's biggest worries, she said, was misinformation. She advocated that people go to trusted sites like the states, the CDCs, and responsible media like Cleveland.com. What did she say when we asked her about bad information coming from the White House? 
She didn't outright criticize the president who, if you guys remember, called the coronavirus a hoax. But she did say that the coronavirus is no joke. Um, she's a licensed preventative medicine doctor. So obviously she's going to be on the side of scientists and who she wants to be on in front of the government response. She said coronavirus mixed messages coming from Washington are not helpful. And she used this word infodemic, which is the spread of misleading or inaccurate mm. information, often through social media and like kind of disreputable, quote, news websites. Okay. Anything else that we're forgetting here? Well, just stay posted to cleveland.com because any confirmed coronavirus infections will probably be an announced outside of the daily briefing that they provide. Okay. Okay, you had a non-coronavirus story that's worth talking about, the bid to fully legalize marijuana in Ohio. One of the details that really stood out to me is that if this became law, and it has a long way to go, people would be able to grow up to six plants at their homes, although only three could be flowering. I'm not sure how you control that, but I guess I'm not the ace gardener. Anyway, that's kind of the cool thing, the Home Gardener's Marijuana Amendment. Yeah. Um, so it's a constitutional amendment that's planned and there are several steps and approvals needed before it can even get to the point of collecting signatures. So we are talking a lot of steps here. But yes, people would be able to grow marijuana, possess an ounce without criminal penalties, and they could buy it at dispensaries. It would be taxed and local governments would get a big chunk of the tax revenue. So do other states that legalize marijuana allow growing it? How does the proposal differ from other states like Michigan, which legalized it last year? I did do a little internet sleuthing and I found that people in Michigan age 21 and up can grow 12 plants. In Illinois, they can only grow five plants. So Ohio is a little bit higher than Illinois. Um, the plants have to, in Michigan, they have to be out of the site from the public in an enclosed area that can be locked, even if it's outside. That's similar to Ohio. Um, Ohio's constitutional plan amendment um, says that the plants can be grown, provided that it takes place in an enclosed locked space, and it cannot be made um, available for sale to the public. You know, there was a legalization effort a few years ago, and the Republicans in the legislature, having learned through casino gambling that if you try to block these things that voters go around you, they put together the whole medical marijuana program in the state that was fraught with delays and lots of other nonsense that you've covered a bit of. Uh, and it led most people to believe that the legislature was just trying to block the full legalization by, by giving something to the marijuana people. It, now we have this. I mean, this is, this is full-fledged. It seems like it has some force. It's got some money behind it. If it gets on the ballot, it's likely to pass, right? I mean, polls have shown overwhelming support for medical marijuana but but more than a majority in support of legalization. Right. So in 2015, and that's, you know, like five years ago, support for legalization was 52%. So a majority of Ohioans. Now, I didn't find any more recent polling out of Ohio, but you have to conclude that as marijuana usage becomes more normalized in the culture, that number is only, you know, destined to increase. So it's safe to say that more than 52% of Ohioans now support recreational. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens. Thanks for joining us, Laura. I Thank love you. that we can talk to the, the experts in Columbus. <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Emily Bamforth and Bob Higgs. 
when's the last time you washed your hands? <laughs> right this morning, uh, I have started washing my hands every five seconds, I think. 20 seconds, warm soap and water. Exactly. <laughs> Singing happy birthday to yourself twice. Um, Emily, you've been writing a lot of our stories about the coronavirus, which I get to edit. So your piece <laughs> last week on symptoms from most, how on most of the symptoms for people are mild. That was a popular story for mm -hmm. days. You've done no end of pieces to help people prepare for coronavirus. So are you becoming a germaphobe? You know, slightly more than I was. Um, Not slightly. <laughs> at the beginning, I was kind of nonplussed about this whole thing. And then now I called uh, my boyfriend to make sure we stocked up on hand sanitizer. So here right, we are. you don't want to make your own. Well, you shouldn't, um, <laughs> for sure. Uh, so yeah, it yeah. was bizarre watching you guys walking around with a bottle of vodka. Yesterday, trying to figure out how Only to do it. Only at cleveland.com. in the newsroom, and it's like, wait, wait, isn't there rules against this? Yeah, yeah. hand sanitizer. Yeah, that's it. yeah, hand that's sanitizer. what it was for. I mean, I think the what what they really to wanted deal with the coronavirus. She's got so much germophobia, she wants to drown it out of her. Well, if that's the way you want to use that, that's fine. But definitely don't use it for hand sanitizer because it won't work. Yeah, now I'm just making sure I follow all of the hygiene procedures that I've outlined in my stories. But I think I'm going to skip the elderberry syrup. Well, let's talk about that, because one way to avoid this virus might just be with elderberries, or maybe not. This was one of those ideas that came from people on my Sumtext account. They asked if elderberry battles viruses. You checked it out, and what did you find? I found out that uh, pharmacists and doctors don't necessarily tell people, definitely don't take this. Um, but what you need to do is make sure that there are no additives in it. Take it as dosed. Syrup is probably best. And at the very worst, it's probably just going to be a boost to your immune system, which we all need, especially in the midst of flu season and being worried about coronaviruses. There are some moms in my book group that swear by elderberry syrup, so I guess it can't hurt. But as we discussed with, um, with Laura Hancock, the science backs up hand washing. You've been looking into hand, si hand, san Ugh, sorry. hand sanitizer, which is the same principle. <laughs> I think she's been hitting the vodka. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but because of hoarding, we have a shortage and people are making their own. So we kind of just alluded this, but the key ingredient for making your own rubbing alcohol is disappearing from store shelves. Yeah, and you have to be aware that in order to meet the CDC standard of 60% alcohol, you need to be able to make a correct ratio for that. Um, and the type of alcohol, Hannah Drown uh, went to a bunch of stores yesterday and 91% rubbing alcohol completely flying off the shelves. 70%, there aren't a lot of recipes for that. And it's kind of hard to create the correct proportion to get yourself to that 60% standard without it. Isn't it just easier to wash your hands? I yes. mean, this is a lot of work <laughs> to create something that's going to dry out your skin. So cleaning your hands prevents you from touching the virus and then getting it near your face where it gets into your system through your eyes, your mouth, your nose. Another way is that you get infected by people who cough or sneeze. Ohio is not yet recommending that people stay away from crowds, at least until we get some cases here. Mm -hmm. But we do have a lot of crowd drawing events on the calendar. Do you think we'll get to the point where some are canceled? They're, they're, they're spread out pretty much through May. So if you think about the example of the Arnold Classic, which this week... Uh, 
the governor announced the plan for it, including just eliminating um, a bunch of the spectator opportunities, most of the spectator opportunities. I think it's really going to go like that, where if there are unnecessary parts, um, maybe those will be removed. Uh, of course, this virus really evolves quickly. In a couple of weeks, we could see it here, maybe. Um Maybe not, but uh, I think everybody's really into preparing right now. So if you look at the next two events, which are St. Patrick's Day and the election, obviously you can't cancel. Well, you can cancel the St. Patrick's Day parade, but people won't like it. Um, I don't. And Donald Trump just might go about canceling elections. (laughs) So here we are. But I think those will probably go off. without any disruptions except i could see more hand sanitizer being used at the polls all right but but let's let's think about this because as i said earlier two months ago there were 58 cases confirmed worldwide now we're hitting up near a hundred thousand it's on multiple continents so so if you think about that spread and and just keep that rolling out in those kind of numbers according to the wave that amy acton amy acton described for us we have the NCAAs at the end of this month. Mm-hmm. We have the Cleveland International Film Festival at mm-hmm. the end of this month. In May, we have the Rock Hall inductions. Mm-hmm. If this keeps spreading like it's spreading, it's very likely that right. we could have, hey, don't go to this stuff, and you could see cancellations. Already, all across the world, you're seeing athletic events, bike races and marathons and things getting canceled. You know, At what point do we think that'll be part of the discussion? A month from now, will we be having that discussion? I think it's when we're going to see our first confirmed case is when we're going to see that discussion. Or you look at something that's fairly international and where people are coming in from outside of the state. So the Rock Hall inductions, Prime One, the, the events that you listed. Um, so in that consideration, you really have to sit there and think, how are we going to control people coming in from New York and, and the coast and that kind of thing where this virus is more prevalent? So one place people gather, obviously, is schools. Are North- Northeast Ohio districts getting advice on what they should be doing? They sure are. Uh, the Cleveland Metropolitan School District launched a new uh, part of their website dedicated to coronavirus this week, and it has advice for families. It has advice for pr- prevention. Uh, The Lorraine County School sent some stuff out. Uh, Rocky River, Lakewood, Cleveland Heights, University Heights are all kind of thinking about it. Uh, Lakewood definitely sent something out. So schools are definitely thinking about this. And the schools here in Cleveland are working with the city to work on that kind of messaging and uh, see what is great to tell your kids what to tell your kids about hygiene because this is a very delicate situation for kids well and the the problem is for elementary school kids it would be very hard to to build an at-home curriculum even if the kids have access to computers it's a lot harder to guide but bob every employer is suddenly grappling with this some like manufacturers can't let people work from home because they got to work the machinery a lot can banks insurance companies we know of some college college discussions now about hey can we turn our classes online you've talked to a few of these what are you hearing what you what what i've been finding is a lot of these companies are it's much like the school conversation they're thinking about it and they're taking steps to be prepared and many of them already have remote work possibilities there but they're talking about making them much bigger if they had to um uh, Medical Mutual, for example, uh, did some testing recently and, and uh, 
testing a what the of, bandwidth of, of a virtual private network or VPN to see to, if to they, see how many people they could handle and and they told me yesterday they're confident they could very greatly expand that so that people could work from home and and there you still have interaction with clients uh, on the internet or via telephone but they could access the system and continue working I talked to somebody from Key too and they, they've sort of been doing this kind of a thing all along telling employees take your laptops home every night just in case something comes up that's uh, why we've always done it with you guys it's just in right. case something <laughs> comes up that's right. something uh, always and in does. fact the guy i talked to who's who's one of their regional directors actually lives in buffalo although he's down here quite often but get a snowstorm that comes off lake erie and socks the new york through away he'll work from home on his laptop well what you're looking at is some expansion of that and uh, uh, perhaps setting up in case you need to keep people at home for their protection. And this is going to work um, with a lot of different kinds of uh, employees. Cleveland State's assessing how many of its classes could quickly move online if students are asked to stay home to prevent the spread, correct? Right. Um, they sent out, the university sent an email out asking deans to sort of inventory their curriculum. What classes can we do remotely and online now? What do we do? What in your curriculum could you move to online easily? And what's going to be problematic? Mm -hmm. uh, some of it, if you have lab classes, for example, that'd be hard to move online. Or if you're talking about things like uh, their school music does a lot of mm. private lessons, you can't obviously do that online either. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at that. I also, uh, Case told me they're starting to look at the same kind of thing. I do want to mention, um, there was a woman in Singapore that put together, Laura mentioned the comic, but what the details of that are, she put together a very, very accessible comic that, that puts the prevention of this virus into very understandable terms. It's worth looking at. She gave us permission to use most of it on our site. Um, it's, it's actually rocketed up the charts on our site today. A lot of people are looking at it because it kind of gives you an easy perspective yeah, on what there's you a, should do. There's a lot of information coming at people, and I think some people just want the most basic way of protecting themselves. So it's good, and she's going to keep um, keep spreading the information. She said it's gotten translated into a lot of different languages, and she just really wants people to have access to the, the best information. So go to our site, look for Laura Johnston's name and Singapore, and you should find it. <laughs> All right. I think that brings our coronavirus discussion for today to a close. I'm sure there will be more in the future. You never know when Chris will bring it back. Bob, let's talk about about a couple of Cleveland City Hall stories that you published. First, City Council wants to declare racism a public health crisis. Can you explain? This is something that uh, Blaine Griffin and Bashir Jones have been working on. There are a couple of council. A couple of members of council. And, and uh, Griffin's the chair of the committee that would deal with this, specifically health and uh, human resources. Uh, and the, the idea is that it, racism, the, the vestiges of racism are still having mm -hmm. impacts on our society, even, even from slavery and Jim Crow laws. And Jim Crow laws have been taken off the books, but their impacts are still there. And it led to institutionalized societal problems. And so they're addressing it using the World Health Organization's definition of public health, where uh, it, it talks about public health and requires... A society to step in to improve public health and, and address issues that are knocking down public health, like 
access to food, access to uh, homelessness, things like that. Look, the infant mortality research that's been done in Cleveland has very clearly demonstrated that racism is causing big problems. It's clearly a stressor, and it appears to be the cause of the very high infant mortality rate for African-American women. I mean, there's, when you do everything else being equal, that's what you're left with. And the, and the research here is, is pretty groundbreaking for the nation. So is that where this idea of the public health crisis comes from? I mean, what, what is more of a public health crisis than babies dying? That's, that's probably the biggest one. And there's all kinds of side pieces to that. And, and you know, higher infant mortality rate almost understates it eight times higher mm-hmm. for a black woman to lose her child in the first year um so you've got that you've got nutrition you've got uh the mayor's talked a lot about the trauma and the health effects of that from crime and trauma in neighborhoods and all of those are health related they affect health outcomes uh they affect education outcomes and uh, in this case, Blaine wants to look at it. Blaine Griffin wants to look at it and say, what do we need to do programmatic-wise as a city to address some of this stuff more clearly? So what is the practical application of an ordinance like this? If they declare a crisis, what happens next? Well, they will now look. He's going to put together a group of people who are in government and out of government. Uh, who can look at some of these specific issues more closely and say, is there something the city needs to do? Say, for example, nutrition. Should there be some access to food programs? Because uh, food deserts in Cleveland is a serious problem. That Mm -hmm. affects nutritional health. That affects overall health and well-being. So you might see something like that. You might see more programs to address homelessness. I'm sure you'll continue to see efforts to try and reduce infant mortality. But now having it declared as a crisis in their mind means okay now you've got this crisis on the books you have to address the health crisis in your city and we'll talk and and see what we come up with to address it emily well pittsburgh did this i think Mm -hmm. didn't they um did they mention kind of some of the outcomes of that in the in the meetings discussing this and what pittsburgh has done well it's it's still a relatively new effort but they're using people like pittsburgh as a model uh, several cities, and that's you. You once you declare the crisis, then you have to come up with a plan of action to attack the crisis and fix it. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, when the the folks from First Year Cleveland came in talking about infant mortality a few months ago, it was jaw dropping. So I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about this, and it's a really big issue for the city to tackle. The other story we wanted to ask you about is how Cleveland safety forces are much whiter than the population they serve. It's probably a related issue. So how is city council planning to address this? Now, this came up a lot during the budget hearings, um, particularly with Bashir Jones. Uh, This is one of his uh, high points of interest. And, And he was grilling department heads. What's your minority ratio? Because there's been an effort uh, by the Jackson administration to boost minority numbers on uh, safety forces. But they haven't, they've had some success, but there's still some places where it's really low. Mm-hmm. We've had a lot of effort over the years to, to change this. When Mike White was the mayor, city council had to do a full investigation of how the city was doing testing for jobs because of weird anomalies. Those anomalies resulted from efforts to increase minority hiring. No mayor has wanted to keep the disparity. Is it that people of color just don't trust the city, don't trust police? That's 
part of it. I mean, it's, there's a number of things here. One, one is it's not as easy as just saying we're going to go out and we're going to recruit minorities and hire them in because you have to pass agility tests, written tests, background checks, things like that. So that restricts some of the applicant pool. But uh, I've heard Bashir Jones talk about this, that having more police in the neighborhood sometimes isn't viewed as a good thing, depending on what neighborhood you're in, because there's this distrust. And part of that is because police don't look like the people who live in the neighborhood. So, so, yeah, that's a factor. So what can be done? Can the safety forces work with school kids, start changing attitudes, get them you know, recruited really young? Um, would that help? I think that's one of the things you're going to see. They used to have, uh, there was an effort several years ago at MLK High School over in Ward 7 to get high school students interested in firefighting careers. Mm. Uh, bring them through a program so when they got out uh, you can be a firefighter if you have a high school diploma um, you don't have to have college education so they come out and then they recruit them into the fire department you might see some more programs like that brought back uh, I've heard people suggest the need for that there's a big push uh, on the police force for more interaction in the community as part of improving community policing. Mm -hmm. Talk to the people, walk the streets so they see you and get to know you, improve that relationship. Yeah, but the problem is just this week, the police chief decided against the wishes of the police, the independent commission, not to discipline the supervisor that had detained Tamir Rice's sister. I mean, it's five plus years later, there was a serious recommendation to, mm -hmm. to suspend her for 10 days, and they summarily decide, no, we're not going to do that. That's not going to help breed trust in the neighborhoods. No, and I, I think that actually illustrates how hard the problem is to solve. You've got years of distrust here built up. I mean, when you get to a point where you have a consent decree, mm -hmm. you had to work hard for that. And it's going to take some time to get over that. In the meantime, they're having job fairs and recruitment events to try and get more applicants in. And there's going to be a panel on council that looks at, okay, how much success are they doing and what else should they do? All right. Well, thank you, Bob and Emily, for joining us today. In a moment, another big story from the past week and the rest of this year, the presidential election. Hear what Seth Richardson thinks we need to know in Ohio. It's this week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Seth. Thanks for having me. Last time we talked, we still had too many candidates to count in the Democratic race for president, and you were working on power rankings. Now we're pretty much down to a two-candidate race. You could argue it's still three, but it's not. So, Well, Tulsi Gabbard's still in, too. So. <laughs> a four-candidate race. She's present, I guess, if you want to say it that way. Um, yeah, you know, obviously, like, the race has really rapidly shifted really over the course of just a couple of days, it hasn't even you know been the month or anything. Um, you know, Biden's looking like kind of the heavy favorite right now. Um, Which I is thought, how we started way back yeah, in the beginning. It's, it's, it's weird to think that, uh, you know, his the, the arc of his presidential uh, campaign is just so odd for a long time. I was thinking if he just stayed home and not done anything, he probably would have remained the front runner. But um yeah, every time he opened his mouth, it kind of hurt him. Yeah, I guess he kind of redeemed himself. Uh, he's obviously looking like the favorite. Um, did much better than I ever could have anticipated on Super Tuesday. I thought uh, Sanders was probably going to come away with a delegate lead, but uh, you know, winning a couple of those states—Minnesota, Maine, Massachusetts—Biden winning those states—it um, was really big for him. 
So even though this campaign began with a number of prominent women in the race, it's all old white men again. Except for Warren, who... You okay, know, all right. But, well, you just said it was a two-person right. race. Well, and Tulsi Gabbard, and, so we can't forget <laughs> Okay, her. okay. Uh, all right. right. The two front runners. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and that's... It, it's interesting. There's um, this, this kind of... Uh, fear whenever I talk to Democrats, right, where they're they're very risk averse this time around. And not all of them, but a lot of them are. That's kind of how we got to Biden is everybody was they're so concerned with beating Trump that maybe they uh, they're they're foregoing voting for the candidate that, you know, agrees with them more that they like the most or anything like that. And I think, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton's 2016 election probably put some um, you know, frankly, kind of wrong thinking into people's heads that, hey, maybe a woman can't win the presidential race. What's a little bit scary here is that before this week, as you said, Bernie Sanders had all the momentum and the Democratic establishment, you could see it on all the social media, you could see it everywhere, was afraid of that because he's so, you could say so far left, so socialist, so progressive. And so when all those candidates dropped out pretty much like together and immediately endorsed Biden, it had the feel of we've got to stop this, that, that Bernie could be a runaway train. Let's get the moderate. And one of the one of our readers put together a thoughtful analysis that looked at, you know, the seven times we the seven recent races, when Democrats do that, when they go with the middle of the road candidate, they get their butts kicked. But when they go with the progressive, the, the thought leader, the idea guy, they win. And the one thing that Bernie had going for him, although I think you're going to say Super Tuesday cost him some of this, was he was energizing people 40 and under. He was talking about health care. He was talking about the environment. He was talking about college debt, which are three things that, that do motivate young voters. Young voters don't really get inspired by Joe Biden, ex you know, except maybe because of his tie to Obama. Isn't there a danger in, in if the establishment is what's causing this? I mean, you just said it could be because they just want somebody to beat Trump. And if that's the case, then that's an independent thing and voters are picking their candidate. But if it's the establishment squashing down the progressive guy, isn't there a risk? So the the sort of thinking, especially when it comes to young voters, is because young voters are an unreliable voting block, then it, it makes it hard to you know, count on them to really win an election. Now, everybody points to Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012, frankly, for the reelection. Uh, and that's true, right? He gave people, um, you know, something to vote for, gave young people something to vote for. He had that hope message and all that, right? And, uh, you know, yeah, the, the risk comes with, okay, do you, do you worry about young voters who frankly, aren't going to be that energized maybe by Joe Biden? Or um, do you rely on, hey, expanding some of those suburbs and maybe keeping some of those gains there? And that's the kind of gamble that they're playing with. Uh, hey, do you uh, do you try to get the, the Ohio State University voters to get out maybe for the first time? Or do you try to pick up the, you know, Rocky River soccer mom like or something <laughs> like that? That's basically the gamble that they're but, playing but, right but, now. But hold on a minute, though. I, I mean, I, you're under 40. We have a number of people who are under 40 here. Um, th this is a group of people that America has kind of broken the compact with. This has always been a country that, that educates people, right? It's, it's one of our founding principles. And until about 20 years ago, a college education was a reasonable thing. 
since the last 20 years, the last 18, 20 years, it's not. We've broken the deal, and everybody who graduates now gets out with a mountain of debt that no previous generation has had. And, and, and you know, because you talk to your, your peers, they're not happy about that. There's kind of a no hope. I, I was at a table with a 24-year-old woman last week who's not paying any attention to the election, nor are friends, because they have no hope anybody's ever going to appeal to them. So why isn't a candidate energizing young voters? There is a history in this country of young voters making a difference. In the 60s and the 70s, young people did a lot of stuff. So why isn't somebody going and really hammering, we screwed you, and it's time for us to, to live up to the deal? You shouldn't have that debt. You should have reliable health care. You should have dreams of a prosperous future. It just doesn't seem like it's working that way. Yeah, why a candidate doesn't do it is uh, confounding to me in a lot of ways because I've you know I've said for you know two three four years however many years that the probably the single greatest issue that faces people younger than forty are uh, is student loan debt right the pocketbook right. is always what people vote with mm -hmm. and there's just really no talk of it ever in any election that I've ever really seen there's there's lip service to um, you know, you'll talk about affordable college education. Well, that doesn't really help the people who no. have been through no, college. And you talk about free college education even. But again, that doesn't help the, I think we're up to like $2 trillion in student loan debt. It might be higher than that even. Um, why somebody doesn't try to capitalize on that, I, I don't know. I think it's the, um, I think it's a huge blind spot for everyone. But I think part of it is because, um, you know, Again, you talk about the reliability of uh, older voters as opposed to younger voters, so they just kind of see this younger block of voters as, hey, we, you know, we're taking a risk if that's what we focus our message on because, you know, they only accounted for maybe 13% of the vote in some of the states on Super Tuesday. Well, and you do get the rocking chair crowd. The minute college debt comes up, they say, stop whining. You know, I had to pay for my college. But, yeah. it, but that is a complete lack of understanding of what's changed. I mean, basically, people get out of college today with a mortgage payment that that they have no asset for. Right, it's, and it's going to affect the entire economy. Like, that's why people aren't buying houses, uh, you know, that and the sky, skyrocketing price of houses. But, you know, I am, I just turned 40. My husband is 41. We both have student debt. So she's now in the rocking chair crowd. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to point out how old you are. Um, but it, it's not just young people, although I, I totally understand, but we're going to have to pay for our kids' education. Mm -hmm. And at some point, it has to, like, I just keep thinking it has to course correct, but right? Is, but is it the fear? Is the reason the candidate doesn't appeal to that sizable you know, crowd that is feeling this hopelessness, is it, of, is it the fear of creating a generational conflict? Like, if I say, like that's gonna I'm going to take conflict. care of people under 40, am I going to scare, the, scare all the old people Alienate to death? Them. And, I don't necessarily think it's about scaring the old people to death, right? Although that, that does, right? When you talk about um, programs to eliminate debt, it inevitably scares kind of the um, the the wealthier Democrats of sort. I don't want to say like every older Democrat is wealthy, but the more uh, economically comfortable uh, Democrats. And it's, it's just not a message that resonates with them, right? Because they might not have student loan debt. They probably don't have student but loan debt. But would it resonate with them if you, if the message was we broke the deal, that, that we abandoned our obligation as a nation 
to this group of people that that states stop supporting public education. We created this profit motive in the college. I mean, would would older people understand that 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 this isn't young people whining that they have debt. It's that America abandoned its responsibility to a large group of people. I don't know. I know, like Laura said, I'm old guy. I know a lot of people that that would probably resonate with. Like, yeah, that's not fair. What, what, what is wrong with us? We should be fixing that. But man, you know, you just have Bernie say, I'm going to wipe it out, but there's not a whole lot of description and talk about it. And I'm kind of stunned. It just seems like I grew up at a time where people that were in their 20s were very, very politically active and made a difference. I mean, I think that they stopped the war. I mean, you know, we're going to have the 50th anniversary at Kent State coming up. This was Mm -hmm. a a big movement, and that's just not happening. And all it would take, I think, is a charismatic candidate that energized that group. I mean, it's your your guys. So, you know, what's it going to (laughs) take? I think that, you know, for the younger people, um, you know, yeah, they they would love to hear it. I think that would really resonate, right? Um, it, it would bring them into the fold because it is the single issue that is affecting their pocketbook the most. And we know you always hear candidates talk about kitchen table issues, right? It's kind of a meme at this point. That is the single greatest kitchen table issue that faces younger voters. There's a disconnect with a lot of older voters, just older people in general, not even voters, just older people in general, because, yeah, maybe it cost, you know, tuition was like $4,000 a year for them or, you know, cheaper than that even. They had a minimum wage job and they worked their way through college. And I think it becomes difficult to articulate how much uh, college had, the college price has increased over the, you know, the past couple decades, really, uh, past 20, 30 years, because it, it just, they, they haven't gone through that experience. When you haven't gone through that experience, it does become difficult to kind of get someone to connect with it, right? That's why you see, um, you know, certain uh, messages that just kind of get downplayed because, hey, if it's not clicking with someone, then why are you going to spend time on it? With the candidates that are at hand right now, and I mean, the other thing to consider, we already talked about it, right, is all these candidates are over 70 years old. They're old. They're old candidates. They didn't have to go through this student loan debt stuff. But... But they were progressive. I mean, look, it's my generation and these people who I grew up with who were like progressive as hell and wanted to change the world. What I see when I see them on social media now, man, they are like they're like, you know, I wonder, though, if this would also cause a rift between the working class voters who didn't go to college and they're like, we don't want to give anything more to those people. They went to college. I didn't get to go to college. I mean, I feel like it could be divisive. Absolutely. No question. I mean, if. Anytime, you know, the the, the thing about uh, kind of the human nature, right, is you see if somebody gets some help and you are struggling, you kind of wonder to yourself, why am I not getting help, right? But but they have kids. And so... It is a two-pronged message, right? It's one, we need to wipe out this this stultifying debt. And for your kids, we got to make sure they can go. They need to fix this If they choose to. So that yeah. is where the candidates, that, that's where the divide kind of comes in though, right? Because you do hear the candidates talk about college affordability, right? And you talk about debt-free college. Now you do hear those kind of messages that are out there way more than anybody talks about any kind of plan for student loan debt. And that's because it does sort of resonate with the, you know, the 50, whatever, 60-year-olds, whatever, who do have kids who are going to college and they're thinking, hey, how am I going to pay for this, right? So that is their pocketbook issue, but the the candidates aren't necessarily addressing what about the 25-year-old, the 30-year-old, the 35-year-old who has to move back in with their parents (laughs) because... 
you know, they've got student loan payments that are five, six, seven hundred dollars a month and they can't find a job that's, you know, paying all that much. Well, I do think fear is playing a huge role in this election again, like it did the last one. Um, We're getting close to a week out from the Ohio primary. Michigan goes next week, which ought to give us a Midwestern window into what people are thinking. So what are you thinking about Ohio? Is Michigan and can predict or is any of the Super Tuesday states good matches? I think Michigan is obviously the best predictor that we're going to have beforehand. Uh, maybe Illinois as well, too, just kind of in that Midwestern block um, as far as the primary vote goes, right? Um, as far as the Super Tuesday states that I looked at the most, uh, Virginia, I think, was a good um, indicator, kind of demographically speaking, and North Carolina as well. Um, imperfect comparisons, but the best that I think we kind of have to go on right now. Michigan is right now, I personally think, uh, is going to be the kind of the quote unquote referendum state. You know, I wrote this in my piece following Super Tuesday, where you're going to have this showdown between uh, Sanders and Biden and the you know, Democrats have been preaching basically since the 2016 election that they got to win uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, right? Mm-hmm. Ohio's kind of a, a tag along with that just because of how big the margin was here. Mm-hmm. And what you're probably going to see now is this showdown in Michigan between the, uh, you know, the two front runners who will then use that as kind of the argument, hey, I can win in the Midwest. Look, I, you know, I have support here. And how can this person, you know, win Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, anything like that if they can't even win a primary? That's where I think the importance of Michigan comes in. And I think the week following, uh, especially if the race is really close in Michigan, yeah, Ohio kind of becomes that sort of referendum state. Um, If one of the candidates does really well here, they can make an argument that, hey, maybe they can play in the general election. So we'll finally see them. We'll finally see a blitz that week after Michigan, because they haven't spent any money here. must be scaring local television stations to death. They always make big money in election years. But you think we'll see them then? Yeah, you're starting to see a little bit of money trickle in. Um, Bernie Sanders just went up on the TV with ads uh, attacking Biden um, outside of Bloomberg. Oh, and Elizabeth Warren is actually also up on TV here. But yeah, outside of Bloomberg, there hasn't been a whole lot of spending um, because they're right now, which the, the, the two candidates are basically trying to front load as many delegates as they can. They want to show they want to they want to get that kind of insurmountable lead. So, yeah, of course, all the re, you know, especially in a two horse race like this, all the resources are kind of, um, you know, we saw it earlier in the primary, too, with the first four states, but they're being front loaded right now. So I would expect um, come Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, you know, Tuesday after uh, that's when you're going to start see them really kind of hitting, you know, this state. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Seth. Next up, the drive for treating the mentally ill instead of jailing them. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome, Courtney Astolfi and Adam Faris. Hello. Hi, Laura. Hi. So you are going to publish a hot story, Adam, about the limits on visiting people in the embattled Cuyahoga County Jail. I'm sort of surprised by what's happening there, as you'd think the jail would want to do everything possible to ease people's anxiety, and this increases it. Could you lay out the gist of your story? Yeah, the gist of it is on February 3rd, they eliminated in-person visitation at the jail. You can't go and see your whoever you want to see in the jail. You have to go and look through like a, a tablet, and it's more like a Skype call. That's the only way you can talk to anybody in the jail other than phone calls. You can't wow. see them anymore. But before this, so, you'd sit on the other side of a window. You, you'd be I mean, right you weren't, it, with the telephones room. and yeah. the, they're, you know, they're right there, which 
might not so seem like a lot. You touch them, but you could see them. Right, okay. which might not seem like a lot, but um, you know, the experts in the field say that's a, a very big deal for inmates and their families. So you and Courtney did some stories a while back about how County Executive Armin Budish ignored problems at the jail as he focused and went about turning it into a revenue source. One of the best stories we did out of the jail thing that you guys did really focused on the number of times they were looking to consolidate jails and every discussion was about the money and there was no discussion about how you're going to do this and what it means. There was no task forces um, put together to to make it work. Um, And we had a lot of people die, some by suicide and some by others. So (laughs) is this just another cash grab? Yeah, it it looks like it's... um uh, going, I mean, it was. It's just a reg- revenue generator. They put up no money. The company Securus came in, did all the but work. But it's revenue at the it's expense all, of the inmates. All revenue, right? Which They're is getting what the we had from yeah. the people, who right? Are visiting. From from the calls, because so if you go down to the jail, it's free. But the, the, you get to use the you, screen. You get to use for the screen free. for free. The screen is like eight inches or something, right? right? And it's like a little iPad, right? But and, if I do it from home. Yeah, what the, do I pay? It's thirteen dollars for a twenty-minute call. Twenty percent. So for the first call, twenty percent of that goes to the county. For every other call that inmate wants to make the rest of the month, the county gets fifty percent of it. So it's a a pretty substantial amount of money for the amount of people that are in the jail. Well, and what is the county? Ca- I mean, what does the county say about this? This is it's like it's one of those. What are they thinking here? The the jail is not supposed to be. A revenue center. You're, it's, you have people in your care. You're supposed to treat them humanely, and now you're 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 making it making their lives harder and making money off of it. I mean, let's face it. A lot of the relatives of people in the jail, they're not rolling in money. Yeah, and that's another big concern is that most of the population in Cleveland and in the jail are they can't afford, uh, you know, fifteen or. What if twenty six bucks for two calls for just to see, just the, so their yeah, eight year old so kid can, can, can see have a happy birthday yeah, wish. Yeah. So what are there inmate advocates out there saying anything about this? Yeah, a lot of them. Um, this goes a lot of research in the last I don't know ten ten or so years about this, and it's uh, very bad, uh, very bad for inmates, very bad for their families. A lot of um, um, a lot of problems come from not having these in-person visits and from the technology is not great et cetera, et cetera. there's a lot of, a long list of problems but so you said this started february 3rd right yeah. how did the jail award a contract like this it was back in 2016 um they didn't uh it was just a because they didn't have to put any money up front uh it just kind of got passed through through a board of control and no it, big it deal was, yeah it was no big deal but it was initially supposed to be for not to end in-person visitation, but for you can have this in-home option if you have kids or whatever sort of, you know, car troubles or whatever. You can still visit somebody uh, with the video as a supplement, but not as a. Does I, okay. The administration continues to to do things that make you shake your head and wonder. Has the county council, I mean, the county council must have approved this contract. Nobody on the county council, Courtney, ever said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a powder keg down there. Well, We've but had people- just what Adam just said, that this was not supposed to take away in-person visitation when the board of control was looking 
at the contract. So if you didn't know that the jail was going to stop, then you'd have no reason to say no. Is the county council talking about it now? The only time I've heard this come up in county, well, I want to point out this contract was passed way before all these problems went off. So no one had like a keen eye on these kinds of mm-hmm. things when it went through. Good point. Also, the only time I've heard this come up in county council is when we've talked about in previous months problems with attorneys getting enough visitation with inmates and the county, the administration has touted these video calls as a way to supplement and help attorney visits, but there's been no discussion of what it means for families here. Wow. So one way to reduce anxiety in the jail is to not take people there who are having anxiety. We're talking about mentally ill uh, people. When someone acts up and commits a crime, police take them to jail. But a group of ministers hosted a packed meeting recently to demand that that people having breakdowns not be charged and taken to mental health centers instead. So what's the deal, Courtney? Yeah, so last week we saw a huge gathering by their own counts. It was over 1,000 people in Olivet Institutional Baptist Church. Does that sound legitimate to you? Was there 1,000 people there? If that building could hold 1,000, it was maxed out. People were standing. There was overflow rooms. There was a huge crowd. Um, Yeah, so Greater Cleveland Congregations brought together. These are faith organizations from across the county, suburb, city, Jewish, Protestant, Catholic group. I mean, a huge conglomeration of, of faith folks in the community and basically prosecutor Michael O'Malley was on the stage judges Brendan Sheehan and John Russo were on the stage and chief of staff Bill Mason and this is the point of it is to kind of be a show of force these are how many folks in our community that say we need an alternative for people with mental health issues and addiction issues instead of being thrown into the jail so County Executive Armin Budish has been working on a diversion center for a while. He's been raising private money for it. Originally, he wanted it to be a place where people went after they were arrested. The consensus now is to make it pre-arrest. How is that different from what this crowd wants? So this crowd wants the pre-arrest diversion center, and the administra- Budish administration has gotten on board with that um, okay. through a consultant study. So everybody's now on the same page that this needs to be in lieu of arrest, in lieu of getting caught up in the criminal justice system. You take them there for treatment or detox or those kinds of things. Now, Greater Cleveland congregations kind of put out their platform of what they want to see from these centers. The county thus far has seemed to only be talking about one of these centers, um, but Greater Cleveland Congregation says we need two. We need one on the west side, one on the east side for easy accessibility. They also want to see, you know, lots of ability at this center. So detox, sobering units, areas, uh, you know, the capability to handle people suffering from mental illness alongside perhaps substance use disorder and, and the ability for wraparound services. So when people are kicked loose, they have the community supports they need to hopefully keep them on you know, a path of wellness here. It's, it's really kind of encouraging to see that many people come out to start treating the mentally ill instead of jailing them. It's uh, it's refreshing that a community could do that. And you said it was a very diverse crowd, right? It was a lot of people from a lot of backgrounds because I guess everybody's touched by someone in their life that has mental health issues. Mental health, yeah, and addiction. That's not, that's countywide. That affects folks out in the suburbs mm-hmm. just like it does downtown. All right, another one for you, Courtney. The county just signed a deal to have its accounts at Key Bank in exchange for some things that benefit residents. What are they? Yeah, so this this four-year banking contract that the county is considering now, it hasn't been approved yet, it includes you know several commitments from Key Bank to do a bunch of different kinds of community investment. You know, a lot of it focuses around the areas of making mortgages available for folks who don't necessarily traditionally have as best... Uh, 
access to that as they could and um, investing more money for those folks, low to moderate income, to get money for home repairs. There's also a small piece for small business loans. So, you know, it's trying to approach you know, generational problems with, with community investment and, and low-income folks not getting access to the credit they need for these things. So we talked about this yesterday, and I went back in the archives because I swore, you know, I covered the county, and I swore there'd been a similar program. And we found one back in as far back as 1999 that Jim Rakakis had done. He was the treasurer, and it was uh, for some home loans. But it sounds like what you're talking about is a more complete package then well but i mean let, but back then it was very simple that by putting the money in the bank it freed up money for a home loan renovation program largely for older homes and then people had to do it in the historic style there were some rules about it but it went on for years and years i mean the county has leveraged its bank account before is the is the point yeah housing advocates and community investment kind of folks in that camp say that this is different because of i think the the comprehensiveness of the package there was it sounded like a one-off um a boost to small business there loans. There was one, 10. Fitzgerald did that in like 2012. But I, I talked to Frank Ford of the Western Reserve Land Conservancy. He's kind of a point man on this in our community. And and he checked with a national group that monitors this. And he said it's still pretty rare for municipalities to go after these kind of comprehensive packages targeting mortgages and home repair for low-income folks. And um, Cleveland, the administration of Mike White in the early 90s was apparently the first in the nation to really leverage this. But, you know, Frank Ford checking with the national organization, there doesn't seem to be, based on their comments, other counties who have gone after this full package. Regardless, it seems like a good idea. Everybody's (laughs) excited about it. I I will say, though, that there is... um, there is a little bit of a, a question mark here, and council wanted to know this this week, and, and housing advocates brought this up, is there's not necessarily a timeline for when these uh, most of these things have to be accomplished by, and details still need to be filled in as to how effective this is really going to be, and if they're going to be able to follow through on all these big commitments. Well, we spent a lot of time on this podcast pointing out the many faults of this administration, so it's nice to be able to talk about something that might might be a good we'll thing. We'll give them a win. Sure. We'll have to see if it's a win, <laughs> if they can carry it out without bollocksing it up like they bollocks everything else up. Just tell, is, are there no computers involved in this? Once the county computers are involved, you never know how it's going to end. Can't do math. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Courtney and Adam. In a moment, we'll wrap up the podcast by talking about fish fries. It's this week in the CLE. Entertainment editor Mike Norman is here. How are you, Mike? I'm good. I, I do not have the coronavirus. Yay. Mike, every year you organize something that is immensely popular with our readers that boggles my mind, frankly, a guide to fish fries. I get it. It's Lent. I, was, I grew up Catholic. When Catholics are not supposed to eat meat in Lent on Fridays, um, but they could just stay home and cook the fish themselves. Why? And there's millions of these things, right? Dozens. Why are these things so popular? Yeah, we have nearly 100 um, nonprofit fish fries listed in our uh, annual fish fry guide every year. And we do the nonprofits because the restaurants have jumped on this bandwagon, too. And so literally every restaurant in town now has a Friday fish fry. What I think is happening here is this started out as a Catholic thing, and it grew exponentially beyond that in this area because they're cheap, they're fun, they're family-friendly, 
and uh, a lot of them are really good. All right. For the uninitiated, what do you get at a fish fry? Is it just breaded, deep-fried fish on a bun? You get coleslaw, right? Like, no, that's pretty normal? French you, fries? Just give us the setting. What is, it, what, do you, what is it? So your standard one is, like, baked, you know, fried cod and French fries and coleslaw. Breaded fried cod? Right. Uh, but many uh, of these churches and VFWs and other nonprofits have expanded now because of competition so that most fish fries now you get pierogies, mac and cheese, cabbage, How is noodles. a pierogi a fish fry? Well, it's it doesn't ha- have meat in it. That's the whole point. It's a I, potato. Th- I, it's a I, potato. Look, I can tell oh. you. I, you know why I know nothing about this? This is like a celiac nightmare, man. It's like <laughs> gluten poisoning <laughs> Give me all the gluten. Ah, the truth comes out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, and they've tried to make them a little healthy by adding veggies to the equation. Yeah, breaded fried but fish. But it's a Let's carbohydrate it fiesta. That's I mean, sure. potatoes are a vegetable. So is coleslaw, right? Um, so is this now a tradition for Catholics and non-Catholics alike? Does everybody go to a fish fry? Absolutely. I mean, you have a young family. If you wanted to I I have haven't... a cheap night out on a Friday <laughs> no night. No one but me eats fish in my family. Well, that's a problem. Then. Yeah. But I mean, they're inexpensive. They're, you know, 10 to $20. All you can eat. It's great. I think I should go to the little one old ladies from the, the churches. Oh, right. Sorry, to, yeah. well, Laura wondered earlier how I would pull this off again, so I'm going to pull it off. It has to be said, so I'll say it. If fish fries draw crowds, and crowds are where the China coronavirus will spread, should I not go once the virus is on the rampage in Ohio? What's a Catholic to do? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not really qualified to answer that question. I just know <laughs> that there's going to be lots of food to be consumed. And just a shout out to two years ago, our best of team did an actual best of contest to determine the region's best fish fries. And they came up with St. Adalbert in Berea, which is still going strong after, get this, four decades. Is that how you say that? Fries. I thought it was St. Adelbert. But I don't know. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. Okay. I well, thought it was Adelbert. You guys can argue about that. Uh, but it's not obviously just fish fries. I mean, we're going to be talking about the coronavirus and a lot of things. And actually, one of the top stories on coronavirus on our site this week was about Catholics and mass. And, you know, should they shake hands during the sign of the peace? Should they take communion? Um, does holy water kill germs? I do not think it's chlorinated. So, although I don't actually know that. Um, coronavirus changes the dynamic for a lot of things here. Um, so... I guess it's going to be up to what you feel comfortable with for right now. At mass last week, our priest said, you know, you don't have to shake hands. You can you can do a fist bump. You can just wave. Um, jazz hands. Jazz but, hands. But you're going to a fish fry. Uh, I probably will, but it might be a restaurant fish fry. I'm I'm not a. Uh, I feel like, like I need to jump on this. Oh, is there any Irish music at these fish fries or like like a St. Patrick's Day thing? Well, oh oh oh, St. Patrick's, Patrick's Day. I don't know. Not usually, not usually. I feel like there could be a good combo there. I mean, some of the restaurants, we're talking like lobster. That's uh, right, because you can't eat meat on Fridays, but you can have shrimp. big, Big time, yeah. That's right. All right, settles it. Go to Fish Fries, Coronavirus Be Damned. Mike, thank you for coming by. Pleasure to be here. Okay, Laura, closing it down, what story did you like today? Okay, the conversation with Seth was great. He's always great, but he makes you think about politics in a totally different way. And totally breaking news, while we were recording it, Elizabeth Warren dropped out. So we're not totally officially down to two old white guys, but pretty much are. are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we talked a lot about the coronavirus, but for lasting impact, I think the legalized marijuana is the story of the week. If that amendment gets on the ballot, I think it'll pass. And that'll be a major moment in Ohio history. I'll 
our culture will be changed as that becomes part of our fabric. And forever changed by the coronavirus. The fact that we're also going to end up with a vaccine for this thing, just like the flu, eventually. Well, I'll be interested to see if we are forever changed. If people put together kits in their houses with masks and all this stuff for the future. We've been told our whole lives this was coming. No, but if it becomes like the flu, then then it will be something that people are always talking about. Yeah, we'll see. Well, we did survive another podcast. Thanks to you all for listening to This Week in the CLE. And thanks to Laura Hancock, Emily Bamforth, Bob Higgs, Courtney Estafi, Adam Faris, and Mike Norman. And as always, thanks to Laura for bringing her wisdom to this thing. Be sure to check back Saturday for our roughly eight-minute bonus version of the podcast when we ask questions that linger from the week's news. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we'll be back next week. I'm Chris Quinn. 